Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Eric Felton. We're going to talk today with Erica Wagner, author of a new book about Washington Roebling, the man who built the Brooklyn Bridge. The book is called Chief Engineer, and joining us by Skype from England is Erica Wagner. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. Uh, It's great to be here, Eric. You know, today, famous engineers are often working with invisible things like software or miniaturized things. But once upon a time, people doing engineering were known for the grand scale, epic buildings they put together. And the Brooklyn Bridge seems to be a great example of that kind of epic project. Yes, I think undoubtedly the Brooklyn Bridge is an icon of engineering still today. I would say that engineers still build massive projects all over the world. What's different today is the way they build them. They tend to build them in teams. And as you mentioned, also, they have computers and microchips to do their calculations for them. One of the most extraordinary things when I was researching this book was in archives, seeing the pages and pages of hand calculations that led to the building of a structure like the Brooklyn Bridge. But, you know, we almost take for granted soaring buildings, big structures. At the time the Brooklyn Bridge was built, it was really something uh, extraordinary. It was really something extraordinary, and plenty of people didn't think it could be built at all. And what, what were the reasons people thought it couldn't be built? Nothing so large had ever been built before. John Roebling, who did the initial designs for the bridge, Washington Roebling's father, had built an extraordinary bridge over Niagara Falls, a bridge, a suspension bridge strong enough to carry a locomotive, which is really quite something. He had built a bridge over the Ohio River in Cincinnati, a bridge which is very beautiful and still stands today. But he'd never built anything as big as the bridge that would be required to span the East River. Of course, in the end, he didn't get to build that bridge because he died in 1869 before any real work could be begun. And Washington, his oldest son, had to take over this unprecedented task. The The story of how John Roebling died it brings to mind just how dangerous doing any kind of construction was in the 19th century. He He had his toes crushed by a ferry, I think it was, and infection set in, and and he was dead within a month. That's right. Um, He died uh, as the result of what seemed at first like a minor accident, Um, but he died as a result of tetanus. Of course, there's a vaccine against tetanus these days, although it's still very deadly in the developing world where the vaccine isn't available. To die of tetanus, it's a very horrible way to go. Washington witnessed that death. And yes, he was dead by the end of July, 1869. And so Washington Roebling's father, who had done the basic designing for the Brooklyn Bridge um, and figured out where it was going to go and had a a career as a bridge builder, Washington Roebling had proven himself already. But how often would a project like this, you sort of think of a father dying and a son taking over, the notion that the son would be qualified to be the best person to do the job, would, you know, you might doubt that. Yes, you might doubt that. And all his life, one of the things that irritated Washington Roebling, all of his long life, because he lived to be 89 years old, 
People thought that he had been born with a silver spoon in his mouth or that all he had to do was finish the bridge that his father had designed. Um, yes, he was certainly part of uh, the early generation of a great industrial dynasty. Uh, but he by no means was born with a silver spoon in his mouth. His growing up years were very difficult. John Roebling was a violent tyrant, as well as being an extraordinary engineer and industrialist. But Washington Roebling had had very serious training as an engineer. He had gone to what was then called the Rensselaer Institute and is now called Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, RPI, which is still doing wonderfully in Troy in upstate New York. He had served for four years in the American Civil War, the cauldron of that terrible, terrible war from which he'd emerged miraculously unscathed. He both fought, but also built suspension bridges for the Union Army to cross before the Confederates could blow them up. And then he had really supervised the work of what is now called the Roebling Bridge, the bridge over the Ohio between Covington, Kentucky and Cincinnati. So he was an experienced engineer, a very experienced engineer, but he was 32 years old. And up until that point, he really had been his father's lieutenant. So it's quite a moment. It's really the pivotal moment of his life when his father dies. And he is the one man really qualified to take over this job. And this job entailed not only drawing, uh, making drawings and doing calculations, but uh, he was in the thick of the of the building of it in a very dangerous way, going underwater into the 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 setting of the of the pillars of the bridge. Um, how how was this built in in terms of the most basic part of the structure? Well, the bridge is towers, and it can be hard to describe this just on audio. It's nice to have a drawing, but I'll do my best. Uh, the bridge's towers rest on foundations underneath the river, and those foundations were built using caissons. Bridges still today are built using caissons. They are What chambers. is a caisson? So a caisson, if you imagine, think of a diving bell or think of a ship turned upside down, and sunk down onto the river's bed. So you have a chamber, a room, filled with compressed air. The compressed air keeps the river out. And this was the, the early uses of compressed air were in, uh, in bridge building. And this was the very beginning of the use of compressed air in the middle of the 19th century, which is partly why people got so sick. It was uh, an unknown quantity at that time. So the caissons are sunk down into the river's bed. There are men inside the caissons. There are shafts for them to climb up and down. There are also shafts for the material, the waste material that they dig out to be brought back up to the surface and for material to be let in, bricks and such. And as they dig, the caisson sinks down lower and lower towards the bedrock beneath the river, where it can finally rest. And as it sinks, the tower is built on top of it. But as I indicated at the beginning of this answer, what made the work so dangerous was this brand new use of compressed air. No one knew what it was like then to work in increased atmospheres. These days, if you go scuba diving, you know that you have to come up very slowly from the depths to avoid getting 
what are still called the Bends, but no one knew that then. And people got very sick indeed, including Washington Roebling. Now, not only were there dangers for the people building the bridge, but whenever you do a structure this grand, uh, there's there's the the risk that the structure fails and, and it would be catastrophic if it did. How did engineers in those days approach the 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 risks involved with the long-term use of the structure? Well, building generally was much more risky in those days than it is generally thought to be today. Suspension bridges were still quite new things then. People didn't know quite how they worked. And, and John and Washington Roebling were pioneers of the stable suspension bridge. I mean, it's really quite something uh, that both the Roebling Bridge in Cincinnati, it's had some alterations, as had the Brooklyn Bridge. It's had to be made stronger for the increased traffic load over the years. But both those bridges look pretty much as they did uh, when they were completed in approximately the middle of the 19th century, which is really quite something. But this was a very, it was a very risky endeavor. And what's very striking is the confidence of Washington Roebling that he would be able to complete this task. It took 14 years. It was begun in 1869, and it didn't open until 1883. But there it stands today. And part of his confidence, I think, came from over-engineering the bridge. Uh, a lot of a lot of buildings, modern buildings, it seems that architects are eager to prove their engineering skill by putting everything within just a fraction of an inch of the tolerances. Um, but Roebling, it seemed, approached building the bridge by making sure that it was many, many times stronger than it needed to be. Yes, there were enormous margins of safety. And that's partly because he was aware of just how risky an enterprise many people thought this to be. So when the bridge was initially designed, uh, the cables had a, a margin of safety of six. They were six times as strong uh, as they really needed to be. And this is one of the things I would say that has enabled the Brooklyn Bridge to be still a functioning part of New York City's infrastructure 134 years after it opened. And not only is it a functioning part of the infrastructure, it's one of the most recognizable and recognizable in, in no small part because of how beautiful the bridge is. Is there a relationship, do you think, between good engineering, elegant engineering, and physical beauty? I think there is definitely a relationship between good engineering and physical beauty. Something that is designed to do what it needs to do will always be beautiful. But having said that, I think back in the 19th century, the borders between art and science, between the spirit world and the world we live in now, were not so clearly defined as they are now. I think John Roebling, it was John Roebling who designed those famous towers, the towers which, as you say, are iconic, not just in New York or the United States, but around the world. He regarded himself in some senses, I would say, as an artist. So it was just as important that the bridge be a beautiful structure as it was a useful structure. Erica Wagner, author of the new book about Washington Roebling and the building of the Brooklyn Bridge, 
Chief Engineer. Thanks so much for joining us on the Daily Standard podcast. It's my pleasure, Eric. And thanks so much for listening to the Daily Standard podcast. You can get all of our podcasts at weeklystandard.com, or better yet, subscribe at iTunes or Google Play. Go to either of those fine services and search for Weekly Standard, and that way you'll never miss any of our podcasts, including the Substandard podcast on Thursdays, the Crystal Clear podcast with Bill Crystal every Friday, and the Confab with me, Eric Felton, every weekend. Catch you next time.